Open your Bibles, your personal copy of the Word of God, to the 26th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 26. We are returning to this section from last week, verses 57 to 68. We began there last week, titled last week's message, last week and this week's message, Condemning the Innocent. Condemning the Innocent. We spent a fair amount of time last week, as you'll remember, setting up really the context for this particular section of Scripture and, and the chapter 27 as well in terms of the trials of Jesus. We noticed, noted last week there are basically two trials. There was the religious trial before the leadership of the nation of Israel, and then there was the civil trial before the Roman authorities. Each trial broke down into, into three separate stages. We took the time to look at them and attempt to sort of reconcile them together from the other gospel accounts. So we saw the three stages of the Jewish trial, the initial uh, time before Annas, the former high priest, and then Caiaphas, and then early in the morning on Friday, the final official condemnation of Christ before the Sanhedrin themselves. We noted also the three stages of the civil trial, the Roman trial, before Pilate, before Herod Antipas, and then back before Pilate again, before Pilate doing everything in his power to to get out from underneath what was clearly a miscarriage of justice, but uh, being boxed in at every turn, and we'll see that in much clearer detail when we get to chapter 27. But Pilate, uh, unable to evade uh, the box that he had been put into, finally washes his hands of the whole affair and turns Jesus over to be crucified he turned him over, we noted, at 6 a.m. in the morning on Friday. And the importance of all of that, of course, is, is that this whole trial was a, was a miscarriage of justice. It occurred in the hours of darkness, and, it, and uh, darkness was truly the uh, environment in which this whole event or series of events occurred. So we're back here again. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us as we begin So Matthew chapter 26 and verse verse 57 and following. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. But they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, You have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. 
Then they spat in his face, beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? In this narrative recorded by Matthew, it's a grim one to be sure. And here in this brutal, illegal trial, we can find evidences of hope. It's not all grim. In fact, there are three bright evidences of hope that confirm to us that Jesus alone is the source of our hope and comfort. And we began to look at that last week. Specifically, we looked first in verses 57 to 60, This is by way of review, that it is Jesus' character that stands out against this dark backdrop that gives us a source of comfort and hope. Jesus' character. And we noted that his character is impeccable. Impeccable. That is, without sin or flaw. What we noted is that despite the fact that both Annas and Caiaphas had pulled out all the stops, they had arranged for many false and lying witnesses to come forward to attempt to to have something to blame him with, some accusation that would stick to him. They could find nothing. There was no basis to condemn him at all. And we noted how unlike us that is, and how each and every one of us, it wouldn't take very much at all for someone to find a blemish on our character an accusation against us that they could make stick, a sin of ours that could be brought forward, a reason to condemn us. And yet Christ, with all the power of the religious authorities of his nation assembled against him, they were unable to find anything against him. No charge at all. And that's because Jesus' character was impeccable. His character was impeccable. And What that means for you and me is that he can be the substitute that you and I so desperately need. It is Christ's perfect humanity. It is his impeccable character. It is as demonstrated here the reality that they could find nothing against him because there was no sin in him. There was no fault in him. There was no guilt in him. He was and is truly the perfect one of God who can be our substitute who can take our place, who can endure the wrath of God rightly accumulated against you and I for our sins, our failures, our transgressions, our shortcomings. Jesus is our substitute, and he is our substitute because his character is impeccable. Second, Jesus' composure is immutable. Secondly, Jesus' composure is immutable. Immutable means unchanging. Jesus' composure is unchanging. In the face of this miscarriage of justice, he remains fully and completely composed. He is not undone in any way by his circumstances, by the the false charges that are brought against him, by by the, the injustice of the entire event. We note it here, beginning in verse 60, the end of verse 60, after many false witnesses came forward, it says later on, two came forward. They finally find two people who can agree. They're liars, but they can at least find two liars who will agree on the same lie. 
And so they bring them forward and they state, this man said, or this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Jesus kept silent. He kept his composure. Repeatedly, they have attempted and failed to bring any charge against him, to make any accusation stick. But, but finally, Matthew tells us that they can find two liars. And they find these two liars, and the two liars come forward, and they allege that Jesus has said he will destroy the temple and then build it again three days later. Now, the source of this may be his statements near the beginning of his public ministry, as recorded in John's Gospel. In John chapter 2, when Jesus first assaults the religious establishment of Israel by cleansing the temple, and John records that at the beginning in John 2, the beginning of his public ministry, they confront him and they ask him, what is the source of the authority for you to do these things? And Jesus answers them in John 2.19 and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said to him, It took 46 years to build the temple, and you will raise it up in three days. And John tells us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So it's possible... It's possible that these lying witnesses have some faint recollection of this this, uh, statement by Jesus three years earlier. And that they have sort of twisted it and turned it into a statement by Jesus where he says, I will destroy the temple. But Jesus didn't say, I will destroy the temple. Jesus said, you will destroy the temple. Speaking of his own body and addressing the Sanhedrin, the leadership of the nation. You will destroy me, but in three days I will destroy rise again. But they twist it and they turn it to their advantage. Now, the destruction of a temple was a capital crime in the first century. To destroy a temple was a capital crime. And so it appears like Caiaphas and the leaders of the nation now have what they want, what they need. They have a charge. They have a, it's a predetermined result, right? They want to obtain his death. They want to put him to death, verse 59 says. You know, bring the innocent party or the guilty party in and we'll give him a fair trial. They, they want to execute him, but they've got to find a basis to do it. And it's got to be some basis that, that will stand up to Rome because they want Rome to execute him. They do not want to make a martyr out of him by just simply taking him out and stoning him. They, they want him crucified by Rome, and they want him crucified for the charge of treason and blasphemy. And so they finally get something that will stick in their minds. But, but they're not sure, I think, that Pilate will see it the same way. And so they're convinced it's enough for them, but they want something more. They want to impress him. And therefore, Caiaphas tries to get Jesus to answer the charge. That's why Caiaphas Caiaphas says to him, verse 62, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying about you? Come on, address the accusation, Jesus. Say something. 
Not to prove your innocence. Say something to further cement your guilt. Say anything, anything that we can use to leverage against you. But notice Jesus' response. Verse 63, he kept silent. He kept silent. Jesus is not going to participate in this sham trial. He is absolutely silent like a sheep before its shearers. He will not address them. And I'll tell you, beloved, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, this kind of composure, this kind of silence in the face of this miscarriage of justice speaks to his reliance upon God the Father. He doesn't feel the need to defend himself against all of these lies, against all of these false accusations. Instead, he is silent. He is silent. He has the entire political, religious establishment arrayed against him. They are going to kill him, and he is silent as a sheep. He will not open his mouth. How can that be? How can it be when, when everything within you or I would, would scream out, right, to defend ourselves, to protest our innocence, to establish our justice? Anyone who has ever been in the slightest way falsely accused understands the, the thing that wells up within us when we want to defend ourselves. But Jesus won't do it. He will not defend himself. He is absolutely composed. He is absolutely immutable, unchanging in his composure. How can it be? Because he is confident. He is fully confident in the sovereign plan of God his Father. He has thrashed it out in prayer earlier in the evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where he says, Father, if there is any other way, right? Let this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is absolutely at rest in his Father. Absolutely at rest. And so in the midst of the most terrible of circumstances, he is quiet. He is quiet. Beloved, Jesus is our gospel role model. He is our gospel role model when facing persecution, when facing unjust treatment. That's not just the the preacher's application of this. This is the the stated and explicit words of Peter himself many years later when he addresses the believers that are being persecuted for their faith in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so it's worth the time to turn over there to 1 Peter chapter 2 and see what the Apostle Peter makes of this example of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2. And beginning in verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 2 and beginning in verse 20. Peter says, For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Answer, none. But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For, because, 
It finds favor with God because you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now that word example is the, communicates the idea of a tracing. A tracing. You know, when you have a, you have a document or a picture or something and you put a, a, a more transparent piece of paper over it and you, you use a pencil or a crayon or whatever it is and you, and you follow exactly the image of what's underneath it so that it creates an exact representation on the tracing paper. That's exactly what Paul or, uh, Peter is saying here. Christ has left us a tracing. An example that we are supposed to, to follow exactly the lines of the picture of his life. Who committed no sin, verse 22. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. How was Jesus able to maintain an immutable composure in the face of this incredible miscarriage of justice? This this travesty in which he is falsely and unjustly accused, in which it's going to end up in his most horrific death? It is because he is fully entrusting himself to the God who judges righteously. He has entrusted himself to the Father there in the garden in prayer. He battled it with his flesh, and by the Spirit he overcame his flesh, was committed to God, and was able to move forward in faith to accomplish that which had been set before him. And beloved, Peter tells us, it's our example. He is our example. And Peter spells that out explicitly here in in various relationships and and contexts in which those in the first century and by extension you and I find ourselves. There are many sources of injustice in this world and you don't have to live very long to be the recipient of them. And so, for example, verse 18 of chapter 2. He addresses servants. Now, we can contemporize this, I think, and and speak of it in the workplace as employees. But servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up unto sorrows when suffering unjustly. You ever suffer unjustly in the business world? You ever have a... a, a, an employee make an accusation against you, uh, you know, or a fellow worker make an accusation against you that wasn't true, wasn't right, wasn't, wasn't accurate, that, that slanted the facts or even made up lies about you in order to diminish you in the boss's eyes, maybe even cost you your job. Peter says, look to Christ. You'll find your example in Christ. How to respond, you'll find in Christ. He will go on and and say in chapter 3 and verse 1, in the same way, in the same way, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Ladies, never suffer unjustly. 
married perhaps to an unbeliever who treats you harshly, who treats you unfairly, who treats you with injustice. Peter says you find in Christ an example of how to bear up under that, to keep entrusting yourself to him who judges righteously, chapter 2, verse 23. He said, Peter says to you, ladies, he says, make sure that, that how you conduct yourselves, both with your mouth and with your demeanor, is that which is befitting to one who says that their hope lies eternally in Christ and not in the things of this world. Husbands, verse 7, in the same way. Notice that, that expression, in the same way. These are continuing applications of the principle. In the same way, you husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her, on, her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Husbands, in the same way, you need to submit to your duty to sacrificially love your wife. But what if I sacrificially love her and and she responds back to me with injustice? She responds back to me with with harshness or or cruelty or or doesn't acknowledge the sacrifice that I'm making. And, And what Peter would say to you is, husbands, find in Christ your example. To trust yourself to him who judges righteously. Do what you have been called to do. Love her as Christ loves the church. Sacrificially love her. And if it, you don't get anything in back in return, and in fact, if you get back junk, trust yourself to God. Trust yourself to God. He will go on to say, to sum up verse 8, all of you be harmonious sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might be a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Listen. Peter just pulls it all together. He says, in every relationship in life, inside the church, outside the church, in the, in the working world, in the home, everywhere you turn, earlier in chapter 2, with the authorities themselves, the civil government, follow Christ. Follow Christ. He is our example. Now, beloved, I can't think of any message that cuts more counter to the American culture to the way that you and I have been brought up. To one of the current presidential candidates who won't take any lip from anybody. It is so antithetical to the Christian faith. Peter says that Jesus has left us an example. He has given us a tracing. And the tracing is to trust yourself to God. And understand that in the suffering, there are purposes of God. For you. James addresses the same issue in James chapter 1. The writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus learned obedience in his suffering. Suffering is part of the Christian life, it's, it's part of what it means, according to Romans 8 and verse 29, to, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 
To be made like Jesus Christ is to, is to be made to learn to suffer like Christ suffers. And it's hard for us. We don't like to suffer. And we don't live in a culture that embraces suffering. And in fact, we don't live in a culture that has suffered. But it's likely to change. It's likely that the days are behind us and not in front of us. And that what lies in front of us instead is to be called into into different situations where we are going to need to model what it means to be a Christian. And so this message is, is very timely and very important. And it's something, obviously, that can't be, be accomplished by the strength of our own personality. You don't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and these kinds of things. But we recognize the role of the gospel. That this is not what it's all about in life. That God is at work making us like his own son. Jesus' character, impeccable. Jesus' composure, immutable. Third, Jesus' confirmation, unmistakable. Jesus' confirmation, unmistakable. Verse 63 again. Caiaphas, by the way, is completely vexed in this situation. It is, it is really um, very ironic. I mean, here's the high priest of Israel. Right? He is at the pinnacle of, of, of the religious power structure of his day. And yet, before, and, and he has this Galilean carpenter on trial before him. And yet, when he appears to have all, you know, be holding all the cards, right? To be in the position of power here, here is Jesus. Just frustrating him and vexing him at every single turn. And he does so by his silence. He does so by his silence. In the face of the accusations, including two witnesses, right? The, the, the requirement from the law, right? Deuteronomy, no testimony to be accepted on, the, accepted on the basis of two witnesses. All right, Caiaphas has finally found his two witnesses. This ought to do it. And Jesus, quiet. Won't say a word. So Caiaphas resorts to, a, to putting Jesus under oath. He resorts to putting Jesus under oath for the purpose of trapping him in some kind of of statement of self-incrimination. Again, a violation of Jewish law. He puts him under oath. Verse 63. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. The, the, the word translated adjure, it means to, to cause someone to swear under oath. It's to put him under oath. It's to, it's to make Jesus, put Jesus in a place where he has to swear to the truth. He has to now. And by the way, Caiaphas has no authority to do this. This is absolutely and blatantly wrong and unjust. But he does it anyway. And notice that Caiaphas further intensifies the oath by causing Jesus, calling on Jesus to make it in the name of the living God. I put you under, under oath in the name of the living God to speak, to answer my question. 
And specifically, the question that, that Caiaphas wants, or that declaration that Caiaphas wants Jesus to make, was regard to Jesus' relationship with God, the Father. Caiaphas is trying to find in Jesus' words the ammunition he needs to secure his predetermined result. He's going to kill him. He wants all the ammunition he can get. And so he swears Jesus into an oath to to condemn himself. Now, because Caiaphas has put him in this position, Jesus has no choice. He breaks his silence. People say, "Why why did he answer this question? Why did he just keep silent on this too? Because he had been put under oath. Now he speaks. Now he must speak. But what he says is not exactly what Caiaphas was looking for. Again, in all of this, at one level it appears that Jesus is nothing but a helpless victim. But in reality, when when you break it below the surface and you look at it, Jesus is not a helpless victim through any of this. He is still in control of the entire situation, including his own miscarriage of justice and ultimate execution. So Jesus says to him, verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus has been placed under oath and now he responds. And when he responds, he confirms that he is the Messiah. In fact, Mark records in Mark 14, 62, the same event. Mark uh, records for us that Jesus says, I am. I am. Some say that, you know, well, Matthew, you know, he doesn't really sit, come out and say that I am. Well, you add what, what Mark records of the same conversation, and yeah, he does. Actually, I think the way it goes together is Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself, I am. But then he goes on. Then he goes on. Right? Caiaphas has asked him if he is the Christ, if he is the Messiah. And Jesus responds to him and says, I am. You have said it yourself, but I'm not the kind of Messiah you're talking about. I'm not the Christ that you're talking about. I am the Son of Man. Notice how Jesus resorts to his own favorite expression of self-identification. The Son of Man. That's the term that Jesus continually applies to himself, really throughout the Gospels. The Son of Man. And, and, and the expression, the Son of Man, is, is something that both veils and reveals something about who he is. Notice as well here, then uh, you probably see it, your Bible maybe has it in capital letters, that he also uh, takes to himself Psalm 110 in verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the enemy's footstool, your enemy's your footstool for your feet. Right? A clearly messianic psalm. So Jesus pulls together Psalm 110, verse 1, and he pulls together Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Where in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we have the coming of the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom. You remember? And it's, a, and, it's a, and it's the kingdom that had been prophesied originally through Nebuchadnezzar and his statue comprised of the various building materials. And that statue with a head of gold and a body of silver and, and then the, um, the belly of bronze and the legs of iron. And that statue that is crushed by a stone cut without hands, Daniel 2, right? That, that uh, crushes the statue and then be, the stone becomes a mountain and it fills the whole world. And in, in fact, Daniel interprets it for us and lets us know that that statue, that stone uh, that fills the whole earth, 
is Messiah's kingdom itself. Verses 44 and 45 of Daniel chapter 2. In those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch that you saw that a stone was cut without cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. When Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of Man, and in particular in this context here before Caiaphas, what he is claiming to be is the God King, long foretold, who will crush his enemies and and will establish his great kingdom. Caiaphas wants to know, hey, do you claim to be Messiah? And he says, I'm a Messiah unlike anything you've thought of. I am the Messiah. I am the king. I am the God king long foretold. And despite how it might look, I'm a prisoner bound before you. You're sitting in judgment on me. Understand something, Caiaphas. In the future, I will sit in judgment of you. I, who appear to be the helpless victim, are the God, am the God King. And you who are judging me, someday I will judge you. In the midst of all of the, of the intensity and the horror of this situation, Jesus calmly, unmistakably confirms that he is the judge of the living and the dead. I am the judge of the living and the dead. By the way, that reality is very near and dear to the early church. It, it, it inhabits the gospel message of the early church as it goes out far and wide across the Roman world. And it has critical implications, not just 2,000 years ago, but, but today in the 21st century here in America. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the God King long foretold. He is the judge of the living and the dead. Just to remind you, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42, Peter says to the Gentiles that, that he, God, ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one, that is Christ is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Peter tells Cornelius, by his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, he has been appointed the one who is to judge the living and the dead. He has been confirmed as the great messianic king, long foretold by the prophets. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Near the end of Paul's life, as he seeks to exhort his, his young disciple in the faith, who is pastoring the church at, at Ephesus and is enduring a lot of opposition. And notice how Paul charges Timothy. Paul puts rebar in, in Timothy's spine to face the adversity there in, in Ephesus. 
In verse 1 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he says to him, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the tooth and will turn aside to miss. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, I charge you by he who is to judge the living and the dead. Don't wimp out. In the face of opposition. First Peter. Peter says in chapter 4. First Peter. Speaking to the, to the church who is suffering persecution. Verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says, listen, in your old way of life, you used to participate in all of that wicked ungodliness. But that has changed for you, and it needs to not be part of your life. Because the time is short. And when, and when the people slander you, when your old friends say, hey, you're no fun anymore. You became a Christian and, and uh, what's the matter? Are you too good for us? You don't want to go out and, and, uh, and, and get drunk with us anymore. You don't, want to, you don't want to go to the same places we used to do. You don't want to do the same things we used to do. What are you, Mr. Holy? They're surprised, Peter says. And they persecute you because of it. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It may look like they have the upper hand. But they will face their judge someday. And you, by faith, recognize that reality and thus you do not enter in with them any longer. Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 1. He identifies himself to John before he begins his, his searing and searching evaluation of the seven churches. And notice in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18 how he identifies himself. He says, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I control it. I have authority over it. I am the judge of the living and the dead. Beloved, Jesus is the one who all of us at some point must face. If you are here this morning, you must face Christ. You face him either as your savior or you face him as your judge. There is no third alternative. He either is your Savior, and you know Him as your Savior, and that brings the comfort and hope to you in the midst of your present sufferings. 
or you reject him. And you will face him as your judge. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians that the day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no evading it. Everyone makes that confession. Those who make it in this life by faith now are his children. But his enemies will still make that declaration at the point of a sword. Well, back to Matthew's gospel. How does the high priest respond to all of this? Well, you can kind of imagine, right? You're not exactly happy with this incredible statement by Christ that I am the judge. You have to face me. You think you're the judge of me. I'm the judge of you. I'm the judge of you. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. He's horrified. He wants to repudiate what Jesus has said. And so he tears his robes. Now, the Levitical law says that that the high priest is not to tear his robes, except in the most extreme of circumstances. And in his opinion, this is the most extreme of circumstances. Now, by the way, it's not blasphemous for a man to claim to be Messiah. Not in the Jewish mind. It may be foolish. It's likely wrong. But it's not blasphemous. To claim to be Messiah. But for a mere man to claim kinship with, the, with God that extends to placing him in a position of sovereign authority second only to God is absolutely blasphemous. It would be absolutely blasphemous unless it were true. Unless it were true. So Caiaphas has it now. He has the two witnesses who have have said that Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple. That's a capital charge. He has now elicited from Jesus' own lips a statement which, which adds to it a statement whereby Jesus makes himself out to be God. Or he claims to be the the God King of Daniel chapter 2. So Caiaphas says, he's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. He deserves death. And then what follows in verses 67 and 68 bothers you. It troubles you. Troubles me. We're Westerners. 
our Western sensibilities about the humane treatment of prisoners is brought forward here. I mean, we don't, we don't do that thing. We're not cruel to those who we have in our custody. We're not spiteful to those we have in our custody. And, and so when we read verses 67 and 68, right, they spat in his, spit in his face, they, they beat him with their fists, they slapped him, they, they called to him to prophesy who hit you. We see this as absolute torment of a prisoner. It, and, it, and it sort of elicits, let's be honest, it, it sort of elicits within us a, a bit of a spirit of vengeance, right? Mark tells us, by the way, in Mark 14 and verse 65, they blindfold him and then they slap him and say, prophesy, who hit you? Now, should they have spit in his face? Should they have punched him? Should they have hit him? Yes and no. Yes and no. In their day and in their culture, they need to repudiate his statements. If they are not true, they can't let these statements stand. They are the leadership of the nation. They are charged with protecting the nation. And so they respond. Now, the way they respond is difficult for us to to really come to face with come to grips with, but, but you've got to understand some of the cultural background here. So, they are directly rebuking and rebutting his claim to be the messianic king of Daniel 2. That's what they're doing. It's not just that they're cruel, they are. But it's not just that they're cruel, so they, you know, what's the cruelest way we can treat this prisoner? Okay, let's spit in his face. Let's slap him, blindfold him and slap him. Let's punch him around a little. No, each, each thing they do is designed to, to refute his claim. To, to, to spit in his face is to refute his claim of authority. It's to, it's to treat him with contempt, right? You, you spit in someone's face. Right? That's to, basically to show that you have no power, no authority at all. You're nothing. And so that's what they do. They punch him. They punch him. Why? Well, because by punching him, they demonstrate their power over him. They spit in his face to, to disabuse him of this claim of, of authority as the, as the great messianic king. They, they punch him to show him you're nothing. You're just a bound prisoner. You know, you've got no power at all. And then, and then finally, they blindfold him and they slap him. And, they, and then they say, all right, who slapped you? And the, and the reason they do that is to show that he has no gift of prophecy. I mean, he, he can't predict the future. There's no way he can say that, that henceforth you will see me, right? The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and, and coming on the clouds of authority. There's no way that you can predict that to be true because you can't even figure out who slapped you. So it's all designed to refute every single claim he has made. They have made up their mind of who and what he is. He is a blasphemer. But they're not going to allow his blasphemy to stand unrebuked. And so they rebuke it according to the culture of their day. One writer said, taken together, these actions represent, quote, a vigorous repudiation of Jesus and all that he stood for. This is a repudiation of Christ. 
It's brutal. It's wicked. It's illegal. But in the midst of it all, beloved, there are, there are evidences of who Christ really is that, that stand out to us. And when we see them, it, it gives us hope. It gives us comfort. If you're in the middle of it right now, you're under the pile, right? You're, you're suffering unjustly. There is such great hope here. Jesus is what you can never be. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, you, and you know, you've made a hash of your life. Right? I mean, you just, you're in a place right now and, and there are all kinds of stuff coming down on you and, it, and it's because of the stuff you've done. It's, you've made a mess of it. And there's no way you can go back, right? You cannot go back. You cannot relive. You can't, you can't fix your mistakes. You can't change the, the situation. But Jesus is what you can't be. Jesus is what you are not. Jesus is impeccable in his character. He is the perfect man. He is the perfect substitute for you. He is the righteous one. And he, and he willingly and, and, and voluntarily offers to surrender himself for you. To bear the, the, the weight and the guilt of your sin. To offer his, his perfect life in exchange for your ruined mess. Jesus is your substitute, and he's mine. And praise God. Praise God for that. Beyond that, he is our gospel role model. He is our gospel role model. In the face of persecution, in the face of unjust treatment, Jesus entrusts himself fully, completely, immutably, unchangeably into the sovereign Father who does all things well. What comfort there is in that? What hope there is in that? All around you, it's, it's caving in on you. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And then finally, he is the judge of the living and the dead. He is the judge of the living and the dead. That means that that how you are related to him establishes the trajectory of your life, your eternal destiny. You are either related to Jesus as a friend or you are related to Jesus as a foe. But, but you are related to Jesus in one of two ways. And if you are, if you are his friend or, or said better, he is yours, then no matter what goes down in this life, You will spend eternity in paradise with him. But if he is your foe, if he is your foe, if you want nothing to do with him, you don't think you need him, you think you're too good without him, you're you're in a place where you don't need the Savior, then, beloved, with all of my heart, I warn you, you will face him as your judge. It is appointed unto man to die once, and then comes the judgment. 
what a terrifying judge you will find out he is. May God give you grace to open your heart to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may you by your spirit cause the truth of your word to lodge deeply in our hearts and souls. I pray for those here who are suffering, whatever that suffering might be, Father, that that they would find comfort even now here this morning in these words and the work of Jesus on their behalf. Oh, Father, may you help them. May you enable them to lift up their eyes, to see that life is not hopeless and helpless or, or random and And that the events and the circumstances, painful as they are, and and we don't seek to minimize the pain of that in the slightest bit, to fully acknowledge it, but to also recognize that you are at work in, through, above, and beyond it, accomplishing your purposes. O Lord, strengthen these ones today to find the comfort and hope in the gospel they so desperately need. And Father, for that man or woman here this morning, that young person, that boy or girl, I pray that today would be the day that that they would come to see clearly that all of life, both here and, and future, is found on one side or the other of Jesus Christ. He is the fulcrum. He is the center point. He is the door. He is the gate. He is the way. And he invites them to come in simple faith. To leave their baggage behind. To seek not to parade their good deeds. But to recognize the reality is that they are broken. They are are sinners. And he is perfect. And he gives himself willingly for them. And Father, for those who will understand that reality, but perhaps this week... The truth of it has eluded them. I pray, Father, you would strengthen our faith. Bring us again to a deep, heartfelt understanding and commitment to the work of the gospel through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.